This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Great to uh, have the privilege to be here with all of you today. Uh, as I was sharing with First Hour, I have a debt to South Fellowship that I don't think I'll ever be able to repay. Uh, just a tad over 10 years ago, in January of 2004, a group of friends of mine and I planted Aspen Grove Community Church. And South Fellowship at that time very, very graciously, open-handedly lent us two rooms down here, which I think is part of your preschool now. And we started on Thursday night, January 15, 2004. And uh, if any church gets credit for helping to plant and nurture Aspen Grove, it's South Fellowship. So I want to say thank you very, very much. Uh, I just uh, had lunch with the two pastors from Aspen Grove who are both good friends of mine, and they're down on County Line in Broadway now, and in a couple of weeks we're going to celebrate uh, their 10th anniversary as a church. So you get the credit for that, so thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> uh, I want to kind of leverage and continue the series that uh, Ryan has started uh, in January, which is Tune Your Heart, and we're going to uh, do that by... Uh, looking at some sections this morning out of the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to start in Acts chapter 4, and we'll look at that, and then we're going to look at a, a shorter passage in Acts chapter 9, and then we'll kind of transition down here to Acts 15, and we're going to kind of do this thematically, but I uh, just kind of wanted to give you a heads up uh, as to where we're going to go. Um, let's begin our time together by reading this passage together out of Acts chapter 4, which uh, Luke is writing, and he's given us a description of the early church and how they engaged each other. Let's uh, pay close attention, friends, because this is God's word to us. Luke says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Wow, what a description of a great church. Um, let's uh, bow together, and then we're going to look at this passage in a little bit more and move ahead. Father, you are truly grateful, or gracious and uh, absolutely great, and we're so thankful for your faithfulness to each one of us. Lord, I do thank you today for the faithfulness that you've shown to South Fellowship and South's faithfulness back to you and to the advance of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for every person that's here today, and I'm sure people came in with some burdens, some concerns, some hurts. Lord, uh, may you minister to all of us in a special way wherever we're at today. And as we look into your word now, Lord, we ask that you might enlighten our minds, that you would touch our hearts, and by the power of your spirit, you would just encourage us today. We ask this in Jesus' name, but for our sake, amen. I'm a huge fan of college basketball, and I think that I've watched almost every Final Four since I was in seventh grade. One of the most exciting, and I would add one of the most unusual championship games, though, that I've ever seen was back in 1982 between the Georgetown Hoyas and the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh, the game was really tight, and the score just went back and forth throughout the whole game. 
And finally, with 18 seconds left, the Tar Heels were up by one point, and Georgetown point guard Fred Brown dribbled the ball up court. He had 18 seconds left, and he knew, I've got plenty of time to get it down low to one of my big guys. We'll score, and we'll walk off this court as the champions. Well, he got to the top of the key, and he stopped his dribble, and he couldn't find anybody open down low, so he turned to his right, and he threw the ball to James Worthy. There was one small problem. Worthy was the star forward for the North Carolina Tar Heels. Worthy immediately dribbled down court, he was fouled, and the game was over. Fred Brown hung his head, started to walk off the court, realizing that he had quite literally thrown away the national championship for himself, his teammates, and his coach, John Thompson. But what did Coach Thompson do? Did he berate Fred Brown in front of the media? Did he accuse him of stupidity? Did he criticize him in front of his teammates? Now, Coach Thompson momentarily set aside his own disappointment. He ran to center court. He grabbed Fred Brown in a huge bear hug, the whole time whispering words of encouragement in his ears. You know, friends, I don't think any of us here would claim to be able to predict the future. But my guess is, is that sometime in the year 2014, every single one of us in here, one way or the other, are going to find ourselves in what I call a Fred Brown, John Thompson type of situation. Or maybe I'll make it a little bit more relevant for those of us who live here, a Denver Bronco player, Denver Bronco coach kind of situation. Things are going to go south. Somebody's going to make a mistake. We're going to be impacted by that, and what we're all going to need to get through it is a whole lot of encouragement. Encouragement is absolutely vital for our lives, our relationships, and our churches. It's essential for our own emotional and spiritual welfare. Gregory of Nyssa was one of the early church fathers, and on one occasion, he painted what I think is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live as an encourager. He said, at horse, racer, at horse races, the spectators intent on victory shout to their favorites in the contest. From the balcony, they incite the rider to keener effort, urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing their air with their outstretched hand instead of a whip. And then Gregory went on and he said this, he said, I seem to be doing the same thing myself with you, my most valued friend and brother. While you're competing admirably in your divine race, straining constantly for the prize of your heavenly calling, I exhort, urge, and encourage you vigorously. Well, basically what Gregory was saying was, I'm watching my friend run his race, and I'm cheering him on. I'm telling him that God is with him, and that he just needs to keep going and going and gain the victory. Well, some people do that for us, don't they? They come around us and we spend time with them and they just pump us up. You know, they come around us and they realize that we're a little bit down. And so they get us feeling better and better and better because they give us encouragement. Those kinds of people stand in stark contrast to others that we have all encountered who, quite honestly suck the life right out of us. They're the ones that I like to call the joy challengers. 
the dream squashers, the fault finders. They're the slow leaks in the air balloon of life, and sometimes not quite so slow. Now, if we can tell the truth to each other, the reality is, is sometimes all of us kind of function in that way. I know I do. I suspect maybe you do too. But here's the thing I want us to know this morning, friends, is that that's not what God has called for us. That's not what God wants for the people that we live with, worship with, or work with. Instead, the Lord has called every single one of us in here to be an encourager because that's the tone he set for us in the New Testament. Did you know that the word encouragement is used over 100 times from the pages of Matthew all the way through the end of Revelation? I think the fact that it's used so much indicates that in God's heart, in God's mind, he realizes how absolutely essential encouragement is for his people. So since encouragement's clearly so biblical and obviously so significant, what can you and I to do to make sure that we are more encouraging to those around us in the coming days? If encouragement really does bring hope and it really does bring strength to other people and it really does nurture our relationships, what can you and I do to make sure that we are filling the tanks of those around us in the coming weeks and months and years? Well, to answer those questions, what I'd like to do is this morning have us get a little bit better acquainted with a guy by the name of Job. We find him mentioned a number of places in the book of Acts, and it appears that every time Joe came around, all the people around him got really encouraged. In fact, when Joe showed up, the level of getting pumped up for the Lord really rose. In fact, he ministered so much this way that in time he was given the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So what I want to do this morning is look at his life and ask this question and try to answer it. What was it about him that caused the apostles to change his name? Well, let's start, first of all, with the next couple of verses in this passage here in Acts chapter 4. It says here that Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and bought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, in the context of this whole passage, what Luke is doing is he's showing us that the mentality of the early church was one of generosity in order to meet the needs of everybody in the community of faith. That's his general observation. But to make that observation concrete, he uses Barnabas as an illustration. Uh, It's clear from this description here that Barnabas was a person of means. He owned some land. But because there was a need in the church, he sold the land, and then he took the money that he got, and he brought it to the apostles, and he said, here, use this, leverage this to meet the needs of anybody in the church. I think he shows us here really clearly the first characteristic of an encourager. Encouragers give generously of their resources to others. They understand that they're not owners, that they're only stewards. Friends, God is the owner of everything we possess. Our homes, our cars, our IRAs, whatever it might be. We're simply the managers of it. 
And what God has entrusted to us is there to be used to meet the needs of other people. I think Barnabas clearly knew that. He freely gave in order to meet others' needs. And that's what encouragers do. They see their time, they see their talents, they see their energy, they see their treasures as things that they can leverage to meet the needs of others. A number of years ago, when I was halftime at the seminary and halftime on the staff of the church I was serving at, I was in the process of uh, looking for a new laptop. And there was a guy in our church who was an executive with Microsoft, and I thought, well, if anybody knows about the right laptop, Dave will know. So one day at church, I kind of grabbed him, and I said, hey, Dave, I'm thinking about buying a new laptop, and you kind of know me and know my situation. What would you recommend? And he said, you know, Scott, right off the top, he said, I would recommend that you buy the Dell Latitude LX. He said, I think it'll meet every need that, that you have. I said, okay, thanks. Well, about a month later one day, he grabbed me after church, and he said, hey, did you ever get the Dell Latitude LX? And I said, no, you know, uh, the church just finished a capital campaign, and when you're on staff at church and they do a capital campaign, you've got to participate. So I said, no, I'm a little bit tapped out financially right now. I couldn't afford it. So I said, I'll probably just save some money, and, you know, next year sometime I'll, I'll pick it up. And he kind of nodded and went his way. Well, a few days later, I was sitting in my office at the seminary, and the phone rings, and it's Dave, and he says, can we have lunch? Well, doing lunch is one of my spiritual gifts, so of course I said, yeah, I'd love to have lunch, you know, let me exercise my gift. And he says, well, let's meet at this restaurant out here on East Hamden. So about 1130, I hopped in my car and drove out there, and I got to the restaurant, and he was already there in a booth, and I slid in across from him, and we ordered our food. Well, after we ordered our food, he slides this picture across the table towards me, and it's a picture of the Dell Latitude LX. Now, at the moment, I thought, this is pretty weird. I mean, it's like giving a hungry person a picture of a hamburger. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, you know, Dave, I, I know you're, you know, really a tech guy and you get this, and I know that this is a really great computer, but like I said, I'm kind of tapped out. I can't afford it right now. And he goes, oh, no, Scott, don't, don't worry about it. He said, my wife and I bought you one. It's over at my office right now. We're loading it up with uh, Microsoft Office, and as soon as we're done here, we're going to go over, pick it up, and send you on your way. I said, hey, I'll buy lunch. <laughs> Friends, and I mean this, you're my friends. When, when we do something tangible for other people, an act of generosity, a show of hospitality, serving them with our gifts, we are engaging in the great ministry of encouragement. As somebody once said, People do not care what you know until they know how much you care. That's the first characteristic of an encourager. They're givers who give generously of their resources. Let's go on to Acts chapter 9 and look at the second characteristic. As we do so, let me set the stage here for us. Acts chapter 9, in many ways, is kind of the transitional section in the book of Acts because in the first part of Acts 9, we're told the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. 
Saul is the great enemy of the early Christians, and he gets letters from the high priest, according to Acts 9, and he's journeying northwest from, or excuse me, northeast from Jerusalem up to the city of Damascus. But as he's on his way up there, the resurrected and glorified Jesus strikes him down and reveals himself to him, and all of a sudden, Saul, the great persecutor, becomes a Christian. Well, he goes into the city of Damascus, and he gets baptized, and then he starts to have a ministry of preaching there. And actually, it's a very fruitful ministry. Lots of people are coming to know Christ. But then the Jews conspire against him there, and they're going to kill him, and the disciples let him down through the city walls, and he escapes, and he makes his way back to Jerusalem, hoping to find a ton of support and some great fellowship among the Christians in Jerusalem. But let's look at what happens. It said, when he, that is Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Now, for just a second, I'd like us to put ourselves in the shoes of these early Christians there in Jerusalem. I think they had good reason to be afraid of Saul. If we rewind back one chapter to Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it said that Saul was destroying or ravaging the church. And the word that Luke uses there for destroy or ravage has a really interesting picture behind it. It describes a pig going into a field that uses its snout to destroy everything of good or of value in that field. Well, that's what Saul was trying to do with the church. He was trying to utterly destroy it. In fact, at the very beginning of Acts 9, it says that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Christians. So I'd say that they had some legitimate concern when they heard that he was back in town. But now what I'd like us to do is go over here and put ourselves in the shoes of Saul. Yes, a few months before, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the crowbar against Christianity. But now he's been converted. He's come to know Jesus in a deeply personal way. He's been baptized. He's engaging in ministry. God is bearing fruit through him. And he comes looking for help, looking for support, and he can't find it anywhere. Ah, look at what happens. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Do you see the second characteristic of an encourager? Encouragers give genuine support to those who are in need. They're the kind of people who look beyond your past, look beyond your reputation, look beyond your appearance to support you when you need it the most. One of the ministries here in town that my wife Melanie and I are involved with is Alternative Pregnancy Center. And just in the last month, they sent out a new ministry brochure and they quoted from the journal of a lady named Jane on this ministry brochure. And I want to share this with you because I think it illustrates perfectly what the ministry 
of encouragement really looks like. Here's what she said. The abortion was not like they said it would be. It was not what I thought it would be. They told me that my life would be fine, that I could just go on as before and get on with my life and everything would be great. But that's not what happened. I suffered from depression and became addicted to alcohol. I had a horrible, horrible time. I didn't understand at all what was going on. And then, through the grace of God, he healed me. I know and I saw personally the devastation abortion can cause in a person's life. And I wanted to be part of helping other women overcome that devastation if they had had an abortion. I wanted women to, to realize that there were other pregnancy options out there. There are other things available. That there are people who care like at Alternatives Pregnancy Center. Their mission is one of helping and they believe in the women, and they give the women real choices. And now, I help women just like me who found out that it didn't just go away. And together, in Christ, we find healing. Well, I think that that's just a great example of what it looks like to have a ministry of encouragement. And my sense of it is, is that's exactly what the body of Christ needs. We need people who come alongside each other and say, you know, I'm here for you in your hour of need. If you need somebody to listen, I will sit down and do that with you. Encouragers have really good theology, friends. Encouragers know that nobody comes to Jesus with an advantage. Encouragers know that everybody sinned, I've sinned, you've sinned, that we have all, as Paul says, fallen short of the glory of God. And they know that when somebody comes to faith in Jesus, that's the very beginning of a brand new creation. They know that God's given them grace, so they can start to give grace to others. In the body of Christ, the motto of encouragers is, no blame, no shame, we'll support you as you need it. You know, if Barnabas hadn't come alongside Saul at this point, I'm wondering if we would have had the half of the New Testament that he, as the Apostle Paul, eventually wrote. If Barnabas hadn't come alongside Saul at this point, I often wonder if Christianity might have taken an entirely different tack, an entirely different direction. Oh, friends, encouragers are givers. They give of their resources freely, and they give help to those who are in need. But there's a third characteristic that we want to look at as well, and this one comes to us in Acts chapter 15. If you don't mind, let me give us a little bit of the backstory to Acts 15. The beginning of Acts 13, there's a church in Syrian Antioch, and they say, set apart Barnabas and Saul for me to the work to which I've called them. So Barnabas and Saul, taking this young guy with them by the name of John Mark, go to Cyprus, and then they go up there into what for them was called Asia Minor. We call it Turkey today. And what they did was they went up there and they preached and they evangelized and they planted churches and established leaders. Well, everything went really well until they landed on the southern coast of Asia Minor, and then John Mark, for whatever reason, we don't know why, deserted them and went back home to Jerusalem. 
Well, Acts 15 is the story of the Jerusalem Council where they're hammering out how people come to faith in Jesus. And it's just by faith alone. You don't become a Jew first to become a Christian. In other words, circumcision is of no value. So they settled that issue. And having settled that issue, Paul and Barnabas decide, you know what we need to do? We need to go back up there into Asia Minor and visit every one of those churches we planted, see how the believers are doing, see how the elders and deacons and deaconesses are doing. But they ran into a problem. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Well, as I said, John Mark, for whatever reason, we don't know. Maybe he got homesick. Maybe he missed his mom. Something happened. He deserted the missionary party. He goes back to Jerusalem. Well, now Barnabas wants to take him again. And Paul says, absolutely not. The kid doesn't have what it takes. We'll get up there again. He's going to poop out on us again. It's going to really hurt the ministry. Barnabas, what are you thinking? But Barnabas was willing to give him another shot. It says that they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I've always found this to be a fascinating text, and part of it is because of the word that's used there in English, sharp disagreement. In the original context, what that word means is intense conflict. Uh, My own interpretation of Barnabas is he was the kind of person who didn't like conflict very much. In fact, I think generally speaking, when Barnabas encountered conflict, his natural tendency was to flee not to fight. But on this occasion, friends, he goes toe-to-toe, chest-to-chest, eyeball-to-eyeball with the great apostle Paul over the ministry of this young man named John Mark. He shows us very clearly the third characteristic of an encourager. Encouragers are the kind of people who will give others a second chance. They know that one failure or two failures does not mean total failure. They know that in God's economy, any mistake, any stumble can be redeemed. Tom Watson Sr. was the founder of IBM, and he was its guiding inspiration and its light for over 40 years. Well, on one occasion, there was this promising junior executive in the company, and he was weighing this really risky venture with a bunch of the company's money. And people warned him, and so we're not sure that this is good. But he was a risk taker, and so he went ahead and risked the money, and the deal fell through, and IBM lost $10 million in the gamble. It was a disaster. And so Watson called the junior executive into his office, and the guy was really nervous, and he was kind of trembling, and he walked through the door, and he said, Mr. Watson, I'm really sorry, I'll have my resignation letter on your desk by this afternoon. Watson looked at him and he said, son, you can't be serious. We just spent $10 million educating you. (laughs) Friends, that's how encouragers see mistakes. It's an opportunity for education, for change, for growth, for redemption.
you don't mind, I'll share out of my own personal experience here. A long time ago, I went through a very significant failure in my life, and I found myself out of ministry, and I was in a bad place. But a friend of mine, a guy that I now label my Barnabas, came alongside me, and he gave me another chance. He said, yeah, I know you messed up, but that doesn't mean you're always going to mess up. And I can tell you the truth. I would not have the privilege of being here with you today if it wasn't for him. What's really interesting, though, is just a couple of years ago, I found one of my students in an almost identical situation I had found myself in years and years ago. And it was an opportunity for me to help him get back up on his feet. You know, as I look at the story of John Mark here in the book of Acts and his failure, in the short run, I have to tell you, in the short run, I could kind of lean towards Paul's perspective here. The kid blew it. He can't, he can't do it. Don't take him. But I think, obviously, as you read the whole story from the rest of the New Testament, you see that Barnabas was absolutely right. Just a couple of years after this episode occurred, Mark is ministering alongside Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, when he's in that filthy dungeon below the streets of Rome, waiting to get his head cut off as a Christian, he writes a letter to Timothy, who was the bishop of Ephesus, and he says, Timothy, I need you to come visit me, and I want you to bring John Mark with you. He's useful to me at this time in my life. Eventually, Mark was the Christian leader who took the gospel down to Africa and planted a church there, and it eventually spread throughout all of North Africa. And if Barnabas hadn't come alongside Mark here, we may not today have Mark's biography of Jesus known as the gospel of Mark. Friends, encouragers are givers. They give generously of their resources to meet needs. They give hope and help to those who really need it. And what they also do is they give a second or a third or a fourth chance in order to see people redeemed. The reason they do that is because they know that in Christ, God has given them his very, very best. Well, how do we apply a message like this? Is there anything that you and I can do to improve our encouragement skills in the coming weeks and months? If you don't mind, let me make a few suggestions here. Suggestion number one. This week, write somebody a note of encouragement. Tell them how much they mean to you, or tell them how thankful to God you are for them, or tell them what they did for you meant so much more than they'll ever know. Uh, years ago, I was on staff at a church, and there was a guy in our church who would have never, ever been an elder. He was never a deacon. He never preached sermons. He never helped with the worship team. But what that guy did was he was always writing notes of encouragement to people in the church, people on staff, people on the worship team, writing notes to the leadership, writing notes to different people in the congregation. He had an absolute great ministry of writing notes, and so some of us on staff there renamed him Barnabas. Suggestion number two, give a family member, maybe your spouse or maybe one of your kids or maybe a sibling, maybe a parent, 
an encouraging word. Uh, maybe it's a word of forgiveness, or maybe it's a word of support, or maybe it's a word that encourages a second or a third chance. Let them know that wherever they're at right now, you're right there with them to help them. Speak their love language. Fill their tank. Suggestion number three. In the coming weeks or months, find somebody who has a really legitimate need and do something for them that meets that need. Maybe it's to wash their car. Maybe it's to clean their house. Maybe it's to pay a bill for them. Maybe it's to watch their kids for a couple hours. Maybe it's to simply buy them a cup of coffee and exercise the ministry of listening. Friends, let's remember, encouragers are givers. They give generously of their resources. They give hope and help to those who are in need. And they give others a second or a third or a fourth chance. So let's all of us here, this year, try to be, by the grace of God, more like Barnabas. Be men and women of encouragement so that everybody and anybody who comes through the doors of South Fellowship encounters a church that is filled with encouragement. Benjamin West was a rather famous painter, and he used to like to tell the story of when he was a kid, he loved to paint, but he really wasn't any good. And he said this one day, his uh, mom was going to take off for a couple hours, so he went into his room, and he set up his painting stand, and he got out all his paints, and he started to paint this portrait. Well, along the way, he said he just made a huge mess. He had spilled paint all over and done a bunch of other stuff, and he was going to clean it all up and get it all nice and neat before his mom came home. But she surprised him and came home early and she walked in his room and he said he was a little bit shaken with fear and trembling. But what she did was she walked over to the portrait he had painted. She looked at it. She held it up. She set it down and then she looked at him and said, Benjamin, that is absolutely a beautiful picture you have painted. And then she walked over. She grabbed his head and she gave him a big kiss and walked out of the room. And West says, with that kiss, he became a painter. Uh, friends, all of us in here today are trying to paint a picture with our lives that pleases God. But you know this, and so do I. Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fail. And the people in our families and our friends and our churches are doing, trying to do exactly the same thing. And sometimes they fumble, and they stumble, and they fail. Nobody in here needs somebody to come along and say, look at the mess you've made. No, instead, you know what I need? You know what you need? You know what they need? We all need the kiss of encouragement. So may this week, this month, this year, we all do the best we can, and once again, by the grace of God, to be encouragers, because it's absolutely vital for our lives, it's absolutely essential for our relationships, and it's absolutely essential for the health, the vitality, and the kingdom mission of South Fellowship. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing some more. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.